I know how you feel, Jesse. I know how you think. I know the way you have been raised. I know the similarities. I know the challenges. So I realize that I'm the best person to help these women because I have been through that and that I have the tools to help them to get where they want to go. And I've always been a happy and adventurous girl, and I love exploring the world and the people around me. However, being a girl with a background from the Middle East, I've always been confronted with what I'm allowed to do, how to behave, and how to look like, and what not to do. I've been through a lot of heartache, pain, tears, anger, and disappointment. However, all of this prepared me for an amazing life that I have now. Your story might differ from mine, but I know you are here because you feel you deserve the life you want as well. I know you're feeling the same feelings I used to feel. And I'm here to tell you, you can have it all. The only limit you have is yourself, your mind, your thoughts, and what you've been taught as a young girl. You're not here to settle for less. You're not here to fulfill other people's expectations of you. You're not here to feel miserable while making everyone else happy but you. Hey everyone, it's Jessie here, long time no see. These words are not written by me, unfortunately, but they're written by my guest Babylonia. She's an Assyrian intercultural coach and speaker for women from the Middle East and beyond. Babylonia was born and raised in Germany and she lives now in the Netherlands with her husband and two kids. They're a mixed family of multicultural backgrounds such as Assyrian and Surinamese. During the COVID pandemic, she quit her corporate job in order to do what she felt was always meant to be, to work with women, helping them overcome their fears and traumas that are standing in the way to feel confident in expressing their most authentic self. But before we move forward to our interview, I'm so happy to tell you that Babylonia wants to give back to her community. She's giving away three one-hour online coaching sessions to the first three people reaching out to her. You can find her contact info in the description. And let me tell you, you don't want to miss out on this one. Babylonia, I'm so glad that we're finally able to do this interview. Um, the last time I saw you was at that Speak Up workshop that you did. Since then, I can not stop thinking about our you know, conversations. Well, thank you so much for, for having me. This is really an honor for me to, to be uh, on a Syrian podcast, but also to be able to share my story and um, hopefully inspire, yeah, one or two or even more. <laughs> so thank you. Babylonia, before we talk about your work as an intercultural coach, uh, I would really like to talk about your upbringing. In that workshop, you refer a lot to your own struggles uh, growing up between different cultures. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes. Well, I was born and raised uh, in Germany, in Augsburg, all the way uh, in the south. I'm the oldest child of, of four. Um, I have a sister and two brothers, and I grew up in a very Assyrian-like household. So my father is still an Assyrian activist. Um, so is my mother. My grandfather was one of the founders of the Assyrian Culture Club in, in Augsburg. So basically my whole life was 
being an Assyrian and how important it is to nurture our culture and our language. So when I was six years old, I started uh, dancing in uh, folklore of the club and that basically throughout my entire childhood and, you know, being a, a young woman, I was also uh, one of the members of the Assyrian Youth Association. So, yeah, being an Assyrian was just, you know, the most important thing in my life. And I really have fond memories when looking back how it was to, to be so close to that culture club, you know, and it was like this big family of all Assyrian people sharing this this mission, you know, nurturing what, what we still have, but also seeing the importance to continue in, you know, speaking our language and making sure that it will be passed down to uh, further generations. But at the same time, I did struggle really as a young girl when I hit puberty. Uh, we moved from where I was born, basically, to, to a different neighborhood because my mom got pregnant again and um, we had to move. So I was 12 years old, hit puberty, was the new girl in the class. And I think that was for me the first time that I really realized that I was struggling with who I am as, a, as an Assyrian girl. But who I, am I in general? Because, you know, there was this Assyrian part of me all this great stuff about our culture and traditions, but also the expectation. And on the other hand, I had a lot of German friends, which were raised, I would say, not as strict as I was. So for me, it was really difficult in finding my own way and who I am and what I want to be and what decisions I want to take and becoming older i realized that i was different i wasn't allowed to do many things and i i always had to be reminded that there were certain things i'm not allowed to do as a syrian girl i can't do certain things i'm not allowed to um you know speak in a certain way i need to behave and i had to fit in that was on the bottom line the the message that i got that's what i did until yeah a certain point which also triggered of course a bit my my rebellious side as well it's very interesting that that you said that you had to fit in because i felt similar growing up do you feel like or would you agree that the way how we are raised it's always like we're assyrians and there are the others and you know we're also like better like them you know we're christians and they're not like that those believers like from the very beginning there is a differentiation also who is more important who who has it more figured out um does it doesn't make sense what i'm saying Yes, and I do recognize a few things that you're saying. I always had the feeling that we as Assyrians, but also, you know, like being the chosen. Um, exactly. That yeah. We felt th that there was the sense of feeling superior, which I always found really odd because I thought, well, we're all the same. It doesn't matter whether you're Assyrian, Italian, uh, Greek or American, German. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and for me, there was no differentiation also between Christianity. I mean, whether you're Orthodox, I, I was raised Orthodox. So for me, it didn't make a difference whether you're Orthodox or Catholic or not. I mean, I just found it sometimes really strange that that was the way 
we saw ourselves. Yeah. Which I think is also in a challenge to maybe welcome other people into our community because we really have that sense of being superior. Um, and surely we are the ones, you know, where Syria is the cradle of civilization. But maybe in some aspects we take that to a level which I would say isn't healthy anymore. Let's put it this way. You just mentioned that you, at a certain point, became rebellious. So mm-hmm. what did rebellious Babylonia do? Well, I maybe not, um, you know, really bad things, but I didn't take no as an answer. And I would like to say that I didn't do these things, not listening and just doing what I thought was right for me because I just wanted to stir up the you know, the Assyrian household. But I always knew that there was more for me in this life. And I remember my sister telling me that she remembers that since I was a girl, a young girl, that I always kept saying, this can't be all. This is not why I'm here. And she always thought, you know, that's a crazy thing to say. I mean, you know, the way we grow up, our, our cousins got married when they were 18 um, and uh, became uh, got their first child when they were 20. And I remember talking to my friends, you know, being married at 18, have my first child at 20 and the second one at 22. That was the way I was raised. And I did say in that rebellious phase that this isn't actually what I want. And, you know, I don't want to stick to all these rules because maybe I want more out of life. So... I just didn't really listen to what I was told. And um, I did also fell in love with a guy who wasn't a Syrian when I was 17 years old. And I think that was um, really challenging for me as a young Assyrian girl, as well as for my parents. May I add, just for the people, you know, not knowing you and living outside of Germany, you lived in the south of Germany, which is already yes. more conservative than yes. the north, I would say. And mm-hmm. then you live in Augsburg, which, like, how would you describe it? Is it like a like a big city, open-minded people, or? Well, I mean, Augsburg has, I think, approximately 300,000 citizens, so it's not big, but it's also not small. We have an own university, so it's already considered as a city. Um, and how many Assyrians? Well, I remember when I was a young girl, we were approximately about 500 families divided in calling ourselves Assyrian and Aramean, so both of that. So I would say quite big. Our community was not as open as I would say that the German community, but it was really nice Um Yeah, you know, growing up there. But it was also a bit challenging because, I mean, we were foreigners. It didn't matter whether we were born there or not. You know, our names and our looks just revealed we were not Germans. And I think that was also very, very often a challenge for for us, but also for me in particular, in the sense of where do I even belong? Because I don't belong... um, in Turkey, where my parents came from, but I also didn't really belong in Germany because I wasn't German. So I think that really also triggered my identity crisis that I that I had as a young young woman, 
Well, it didn't stop you from dating a Nogroyo, <laughs> like true. a foreigner. Yes. So that was my rebellious side. Well, yes, that's true. My um, first boyfriend or, you know, my first love ever was was a Croatian guy. He was uh, in my class and I did fell in love with him. Yeah, I was really on top of the world. I was so, so in love. And it was the first time that I really felt someone saw me for who I really was, and I didn't need to pretend to be someone else. Yes, I did knew that my parents would not necessarily agree. I was still in, in school. I was 17 years old. I haven't graduated yet. And um, I mean, I have to say that I kept it quiet um, because I knew it wouldn't be accepted. Uh, my mom did find out eventually. She found a love letter under my pillow. Um, Seriously, Babylonia, that was not smart <laughs> at all. No, it wasn't. And I re don't even remember why I, I put it there. And normally my mom never made my bed, but that certain day she did it. And that's when she found um, a letter of three pages. Um, and you can imagine when I got home, I have been lectured what the hell I was doing and yeah, that I was playing with the fire. Not even was I a young girl. I was still going to school. You know, there it's not none of my business to fall in love. I even don't know what love means as a young girl. And of course, I mean, he wasn't a Syrian. So um, my parents, of course, didn't really appreciate that I was with someone. And um, yeah, well, they wanted me to to break up, to cut that off. And I think that's the first response of parents you know when when they're um, overwhelmed with a certain situation or just don't know how to handle that that was it you know you have to break it up you're still a young girl you still have to go to school and there are more important things um but rebellious babylonia did not break up with uh with him so i did stay with him um, which was quite a challenge because he knew assyrians he knew how our culture was and how a young girl was seen when you were you know already with someone who's not a syrian and i think i don't need to um yeah tell you how you know the women were called back then and maybe still um however i did stay with him and we were madly in love and i really thought that he would be the one i really thought i would marry him and we even talked about getting married and having children unfortunately the universe or God or whatever you want to call it had other plans for me because uh, nine months into our relationship after, you know, uh, my parents found out and all of that, um, he decided to commit suicide. That was um, by far the darkest period of my life. Yeah. I can not imagine how that feels like you were 16, 17 years old when that yeah. happened. Yeah, that's a lot of trauma for a girl to handle, I, I guess. Yeah, so it was really hard for me to, um, to go through that and to accept that. And I mean, while I was in this relationship, there were red flags that I didn't see, obviously, because you're in love and you're young and, you know, you fantasize about life. But... Now, you know, 20 years later, when I look back, I know that he was struggling, you know, with mental health. He was um, having depressions. Um, so that was what 
has led basically to his decision to to step out of life but nevertheless it did create such a void in my heart and in my soul because i was thinking you know we were so in love he loved me and i loved him why didn't we had a happy ending and you did mention already trauma it really was such a traumatic experience but also what i kept in myself all the time was why was my love not enough to save him not knowing that i would never be able to save him because he was just not in a good place mentally and he would have done that eventually anyway but you know when you're such a young girl you just wonder how can this happen and i mean that's something you see in the news or in movies but never thought it would happen to you so it was really 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 hard for me and um, that was for me also really the turning point in my life yeah how did you how did you navigate through life after that like mentally physically um i have to say i don't really remember the first two weeks i i do recall how it was when when i got the news when i told it my sister and the closest friends and you know also planning the funeral and stuff or being part of it so i do remember that but there are really some occasions i don't remember i have a total um memory block i would say um and i think the most important person who really helped me back then was was my cousin she's a bit older than me and she is a social worker she used to be a social worker and she found out um that that happened because it was easter and i didn't went um with my parents to my uncle and that my cousin found it odd because she was like ah babylonia always comes and my sister said yeah she's not feeling well so she took my sister aside and said what happened i don't believe that and that's basically when my cousin jumped in the car came to see me and really picked me up from the floor and guiding me through therapy um not only did i had to tell my parents that i was still with with this boy but also telling them that i need therapy that i need someone to talk to and my aunt and my cousin really you know came to the talk with my parents i mean you know i was heartbroken and i was just so so hurt and not in a good place mentally as well that they said okay you know we, she needs help but 20 years ago going to a therapist was already a big thing and i mean in an immigrant family and i don't think i need to tell you that and i think a lot of people can relate that was just something you didn't do you know it was more like suck it up it happened um but we're not going to send our daughter to a psychologist because she isn't crazy so that was also the struggle for my parents because they saw me heartbroken sad and they wanted to help but they couldn't because you know from the way they have been brought up this was just something you wouldn't do and there was always this okay well if people find out she's going to a therapist they will think she's crazy and it was really for everyone in my family also for my siblings a really hard hard time for them as well yeah as you mentioned mental health is not a big topic in our community i think it i think it is getting better much better than 
obviously 10, 20 years ago, but yeah, I can only imagine like you would feel like something is wrong with you and that you're alone in this. So I'm really glad that you had that cousin. Yeah, if, if she wouldn't be around, I honestly don't know whether, whether I would be here in this moment with you because she really wow. saw that it was essential for me to go. And I mean, like you said, she works in the field. She has seen these things before. And the logical thing to do is then really sending someone to therapy to work on that trauma, to heal that trauma. And that's what, what I did. I was then in, in therapy for, for three years. Um, and even though my mother had really struggled with, you know, accepting that that happened to me and that I needed help. She really helped me finding a therapist, which was really odd to say now, but that helped me bond with her in that really strange and hurtful situation. Um, so I was really happy that she did help me with that. And they did support me to go at the end because they knew this is what I needed, regardless of what they thought going through a therapist is like um so yeah looking at your last name you are married now so let's talk about the love of your life now yes um yeah well my husband um his name is is gerald and i met him um on my first holiday ever with my sister and my my best friends i mean um I was 23 years old. I just um, graduated from my uh, study. I finished that and we went on holiday together. And that's where I met him 14 years ago. And um, and he has yeah. a very interesting last name, I must say, which I don't know how to pronounce. Um, so I'm not going to pronounce it. You're going to pronounce it, please. <laughs> yeah, well, um, there's also a difference. I mean, the, the Dutch people say basically, Buchwanzing, so the way it's written, but it's an Indian name. But the real pronunciation is actually Bhagwan Singh. So and Babylonia, Bhagwan Singh, just to make it really long. <laughs> but he's not Indian. Well, I mean, his roots are Indian. However, um, his great grandparents came from India and moved um, to Suriname. So basically, his great grandparents came as guest worker to um, to Suriname. And Suriname is uh, the country next to Brazil, so in South America, as guest workers to build up that country. Suriname used to be a Dutch colony. So that's when his grandparents, great-grandparents, grandparents, grandparents um, were born in Suriname and his parents were, were they born as well. However, his parents came 44 years ago from Suriname to the Netherlands because, again, Suriname was a Dutch colony, so it was easier to make that switch than to, to Europe. And my husband was born and raised here. If you didn't say it is next to Brazil, I wouldn't even know where the, it's located. So what kind of religion do they have? Are there, are there Christians because of the Dutch or are there Hindu um, well, Suriname is not just the country which its residents being um, Indian, but there it's a mix of 
lots of ethnicities because there are also Africans, there are um, Chinese people, also Dutch people, obviously. I also um, read somewhere Lebanese. So it's basically, uh, it used to be a very poor country and the Dutch, you know, brought all these people basically together um, to to build up that country. So the majority, I would say, are most probably Christian and Hindus, also a part of that being Muslim. And um, so, yeah, it's a really mixed country, I would say, because of the different ethnicities. And yeah, the music is really nice because it's um, more the, the Caribbean rhythm. So yeah, it's it's really interesting to to read into that story. And I mean, of course, um, it's not always uh, there is also obviously a not so nice part of that story. But for me, it was also the first time that I met someone from from Suriname because I also didn't know where it was located until he told me where it was. So when I got home, um, I had to first Google it where it was and um, yeah, what this country basically looked like. So um, yeah. So when did you decide that he's the love of your life? <laughs> I saw him and there was this instant voice, you know, saying, this is the, the guy you will marry. And I was like, what the hell is going on here? So I went to my best friend and I said, do you see that guy? And she was like, yeah, 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 um, yeah, um, nice guy. And I said, yeah, this is the one I, I'm, I'm going to marry. And she was like, are you sick or are you drunk? Like, what are you talking about? And I just remember telling her that I don't know what it is. I have no idea where this is coming from, but there is this intense feeling in my body and my chest. And that voice that keeps telling me that this is the man I will marry. And mind you that I knew already back then that if this is going to happen, I'm going to play with the fire, obviously, because, um, yeah, not only is my husband not an Assyrian, it's a totally different ethnicity. Um, his skin color is, of course, also different, but also he isn't Christian or wasn't um, born and raised um, as a Christian. So, yeah. When you when you you just told me that story, I don't know, I feel like I, I remember that from some Bollywood movie. Like the plot <laughs> sounds very similar. Like, is that really your life story? <laughs> yes it, no no i really i'm not making it up i mean you can ask my sister she was part of that day too and of that whole uh, love story but um yeah like you said maybe that's my own bollywood story but yeah. just like in the movies when you know the family comes in the drama happens so what happened yes. what happened in your plot well like you said when the family is involved the drama starts so um it was indeed um, a drama. So when I had the guts to tell my parents that I met someone who isn't a Syrian and also not Christian, I think the world collapsed for my parents, especially for my mother, because, you know, my husband isn't that perfect son-in-law that Assyrian parents maybe, you know, envision for you. So it was really, really difficult for my for my mother to um, to accept that or to deal with that, and it did create a lot of struggle for for me, for my family, um, and for my parents. And of course, it did also do something um, to our bond that we had because that was not something they saw coming. Um, but also that question 
which I think a lot of Assyrian parents ask themselves, why our daughter, what have we done? You know, it had nothing to do with anything of that. I just fell in love with someone um, who just doesn't fit into that picture of, you know, that, that Assyrian um, son-in-law that they had. So yeah, it, it was really, really hard and challenging. And in the beginning, they couldn't really accept it. So it took really a while until, um, yeah, not only my parents, but also the rest of the family, obviously, um, got used to that thought because, um, yeah, like I said, I'm the daughter of an Assyrian activist and that's just something you don't do. Did that change the way how you approach your own culture? Like, did you, because of the people excluding him, Did you have any hard feelings towards your own culture? And because you love that, obviously, growing up, right? Yes, definitely. I had really hard feelings because I always thought we're so welcoming. At least that was the way I'd been brought up. You know, we were really extrovert. We did a lot of stuff in the culture club. We were really integrated in Germany. So I really thought that, okay, you know, when the first shock is um, is passed and everything settles down a bit, then that wouldn't be a big thing. And maybe I was a bit naive also, but I just really was convinced that after everything, when the first shock is over um, and everyone sort of, you know, got used to that, then it would be fine. But it wasn't because then... You know, my family had to hear certain things. People were talking about me, uh, not in a really nice way. Like, how could I do something like that to my parents? I know that my parents really had, had a hard time also listening to all of that. And, you know, this throwing it in my face towards my parents. So it was really hard. And I did exclude myself as well here in the Netherlands that I just didn't want to be in contact with anyone from my culture. I just really excluded myself um, on purpose because of all that drama. And I just didn't want any more drama of that. I just wanted to live my life, be with him and, you know, just, just do my thing. So for the first couple of years, I haven't met any Assyrian person here in the Netherlands, or at least not in Rotterdam. Um, And yeah, there were moments where I missed this because, I mean, it's part of me. It's who I am. I love my culture. I love my language. I know I love everything that Assyrians stand for. But on the other hand, they gave me the feeling that I wasn't part of that anymore because I chose to marry someone outside, you know, of my culture, ethnicity, uh, etc. I think it's a very interesting thing that you just said because... Um, initially, you love your culture, you're practicing it, you're speaking the language, and etc, etc. And then you do you do something that makes your community feel like, okay, she's not part of us anymore. And we're going to behave like that. We're going to make her feel that she's doing something wrong. And we're going to exclude her. And like the fear that they have is, you know, because she's marrying outside of the culture, the culture um, I don't know, gets reduced, gets lost, etc. But actually by excluding you, 
they pushing for this and you automatically exclude yourself because you yeah. don't feel welcome anymore. So it backfires. Indeed. So it's such a controversial thing because instead of saying, okay, you know what, she, she chose that, she fell in love with that, with that person. And not just me. I mean, there are plenty other women who marry outside of our uh, culture. But instead of saying, okay, you know what, it is what it is. And we welcome her and her husband as well, or boyfriend. And, you know, so that they can still nurture being an Assyrian, speaking the language and such. And that wasn't in my case um, because he wasn't welcome at first. It gave me the feeling that I wasn't welcomed either. So I did take a step back and said, you know what? I don't want to even hear about it or see about it. I also stopped listening to Assyrian music. I mean, I still kept speaking the language with my parents, obviously, but I deliberately chose not to be part of that um, community or nation anymore. And I always remember kept saying to my parents, you know, these are two totally different things. I can't fall in love with someone who's not a Syrian and still being a Syrian. It doesn't change a thing. I'm still who I am. I'm still an yeah. Assyrian woman, but my heart belongs to someone who's not. So what's the big deal? And I think that this is still something that our community um, needs to learn and accept that these are two totally different things. And yeah, we actually had an episode about this where we interviewed the people that are from outside of the culture and got married to an Assyrian. And what stood out to me was that collectively they said that just because you're marrying outside of your culture, that doesn't mean that you have to give up your culture. Like you can still practice the things and keep them alive. And yes. you should see it more like a, like a bonus rather you're giving something up. Yeah, so I agree. Would you say would you say that you practice that with your husband? Like how do you raise your children? Yeah, I have two boys. They are six and three years old, and they get the best out of both cultures. Um, I would even say religions as well. For me, it was really important that my children um, will be raised in Assyrian. So that was something that I really made clear, despite of, you know, how our love story began when, when my parents and the community found out and me, you know, taking a step back from being part of the Assyrian community. It was still without a question that I would speak Assyrian to my children, which I also did. And they, they do understand it when I'm going back to Germany to my parents. They they talk, you know, with my parents, they learn it. So that was something that was, yeah, just the most normal thing to do, even though I didn't want to be in contact with anyone. So, but that fire that was a part of me saying, okay, this is still who I am. And my children are part of, the Assyrian community as well. So they they do speak Assyrian, they do understand it. And we really take um, both out of, uh, we take the best out of both cultures. So we also, you know, practice obviously the, the, the Christian um, holidays as well as the, the Hindu. So the religion that my parents-in-law practice is Hinduism. So we do both because I see it as a bonus, as you said, I see it as something great, a different culture. And I mean, also, I was also really open to 
um, get to know the culture of my husband, especially that Indian part, but also the Surinamese. So he has basically two bonus cultures, which is which is great. And we, I have to say, it really goes well. I mean, our children are free to decide what what fits best for them, and they're really excited um, to also learn both of that and i mean they they're the older one is now in an age where he realizes okay there are certain differences so my mom and the family of my mother they celebrate um easter and christmas really big the in-laws not so much but then there's diwali which comes up now by the end of october which is the the feast of light so yeah and i'm just really really proud that my children can experience that and i just see it as such a great addition to you know being a human being but also being open for different cultures and different traditions and um yeah not only language wise but also really you know tradition wise i think it's it's just an amazing thing to have so your children feel like part of the assyrian community well i think they're you know they're still pretty small i don't think they realize yet what what it means but now the oldest one is um, asking, you know, like, where do I come from? Because that's also a subject at school. So I'm trying to explain to him, you know, your mom is Assyrian. And then he's like, yeah, but you're from Germany. And I'm like, yeah, I was born and raised there. So now he has that interest, but I always made it clear, you know, you're Assyrian. And this is um, just the way he handles it and he knows it. And this will, will never change. Of course, I want them to be also part of that so i also want to actively participate in you know um building a network here where they do also have contact to other assyrian children but maybe also you know um taking them to uh haggle to a Syrian party where they get used to the music but also to you know dancing so that's really something that that i want to do and i also see it as my duty to do so I, I'm I'm just imagining a half Surinamese, half Assyrian <laughs> guy dancing baguette. Like, wow! Oh, that's yeah. I I I feel what you're saying. Like, it's really a bonus. It's such a great great thing. Um, and you know, in another interview that we had, somebody said, if we are not willing to, you know, open our gates and accept the people. Um, why would other like communities or ethnicities care about us? So mm-hmm. in by opening and you know making feel people more welcome, we we're getting also more allies for our yeah. cause. Yeah, I agree. Well, I'm very glad now that everything worked well for your family. Um, you mentioned that you live now in Rotterdam, which is in the Netherlands. What did you work there? Like, did you right away became a coach? Um, no, so I came to the Netherlands 12 years ago and started immediately, immediately in corporate life because that's what my study was. So I started uh, working for the big giants corporate like Lindo Basel and the last nine years then for Shell. So I started there, did different jobs, made a career basically. And um, yeah, I mean, I was I was happy. I had good jobs. It really paid good money. But there was always since i've been a young girl especially after um my first boyfriend committed suicide there was this urge to do something with people and i remember keep saying 
to my family that I want to do something more in the social field. This is something I can do. I can do work well with people. Um, but you know what? There were jobs like not paying well enough. And I mean, also in our culture, there are certain professions that you should um, aspire and that's what you should do. So I thought, okay, you know what? I'm just going to do the traditional way. So I worked for corporate, like I said, and after having my first son, that urge to do something else just became greater and greater. And it was like a volcano, you know, sometimes it just popped up and others, it was just really quiet and there were really phases, but I kept noticing that I was more and more unhappy. And I'm sure that my first son really triggered that. What is it that you want to get out of life? Is this how you want to spend your life? I mean, if you want, if you're looking back, is this what you want to look back? And I was still searching and, okay, what, what is it that I really want? And I mean, we bought a house and we had a boy and, you know, it wasn't as easy to just change which I know now is an excuse, obviously, because there's never the right time to do something. However, my second son was born in July 2019. And then, of course, um, by December, I had to go back to work because my parental leave was, was over. And I was really, really unhappy. We also had some health issues with our youngest after he was born immediately. So, you know, there was a lot going on and being mother of two and working and stuff. And I I just remembered I'm so unhappy with myself and not necessarily with my life, but I just felt lost, lost in who am I as a, as a person, not necessarily as a wife or a mother, but who is Babylonia? And I just couldn't really answer that question because if I took the labels off that we all have, you know, who was I? And I really fell into a black hole of not knowing what I want and who I am and I was just sick of life how it was and you know that question that I also or that thing that I kept saying to my sister when I was a young girl this can't be it I'm not in this world to just live a life like this you know in the system and then of course the pandemic came so um it was really hard, but at the same time, for me, that was the moment where I said, okay, and you know what? No more. I'm done with this shit. I need to change something. You know, I'm just fed up with this shit. And um, yeah, I'm not going to do it anymore. So that's basically when I started my own healing so two the, and a half years ago. The pandemic really put things in perspective and like, yes, was the tip of the iceberg, you would say? Yes. Yeah. And I think I realized that it doesn't matter how crazy the outside is. The only thing that matters is the inside, how I perceive myself, how I see myself. And that was then the reason where I said, okay, you know what, I'm just going to start. And I just looked back a few days ago when I um, booked my first program and it was actually April 2nd. So just, you know, two weeks after the pandemic hit. And for me, that was the best thing I've ever done investing in myself and in my own healing. Um, and then this whole thing started off, okay, I want to do something else. Um, 
and I decided to become a children's coach. So I'm, I'm a certified children's coach. And by May of 2020, we heard from the board of Shell, you know, that Corona isn't going anywhere. It's going to stay around. And of course, the jobs are threatened and that we had the chance to um, get a buyout. And oh. then I thought, OK, you know what? This is my chance. So just so, to understand, you were still working at Shell while you yes. did those uh, workshops in order to yes. learn the other job. Yeah, well, I was still working for, uh, for Shell. I um, I just got a promotion in February 2020. So I had a different job, um, worked three days because of the two children um, and was doing a course next to it. It was privately. So basically, I was just working on my own healing. And then by April, I decided, OK, I'm going to do something completely different. I want to become a children's coach. This is the profession I want to do next to, you know, still working for Shell. And once my business is up and running, I'm going to quit Shell. That was the plan. Just didn't know how I'm going to wow. do that because financially, obviously, I mean, we had just two children. We have a mortgage and stuff. But then by the end of May, um, this chance from Shell came up that, you know, if you want voluntarily to leave shell this is the chance that you have you can have a buyout but because i just you know got promoted to a different job earned more money i wasn't sure whether this was um, a was possible to do and i did a part-time job with my best friend together uh, a german lady um so we did apply for it and um i just knew that this is my chance i knew I will get the money, it will work out, and all will be fine. And one day before my birthday, I got the call of my line manager saying, you know what, your request has been granted and it's done. By the end of December of 2020, you can leave the company and have the buyout. Um, and by that wow. period, I already started the coaching study. So I did study on top of being a mother, um, still working and doing indeed my my coaching certificate. Kudos to you because like you have two children. It's, it's the you. pandemic. Okay. Yeah. So that means they're at home. Yes. And then you're studying for another job and also working for that main job. That's so much things at once. Like, wow, you really you're a strong woman. Thank you. It was hard, I have to say. I mean, yeah. kudos to all the mothers and fathers who survived that period and also, you know, homeschooling the children because by then the school were open, but it was just, just crazy because my son didn't go for half a year. He had to go. He had to, you know, get adjusted at school and the baby was just a year old. I mean, it's it's been really hard, but on the other hand, I just knew this is what I want and I'm just going to make it work. And I think that's what's what's really important to just just go for it because there is no perfect timing. And that's when I just thought, you know what, F it, I'm just going to do it. So I did a certify then as a children's coach, did on top of that specialization as a women's, women's coach as well, half a year. And um, that's basically when I became a coach. So I, I quit Shell. Um, did still the second study on top of, you know, being a mother and all. And um, 
July 2021 was the year that I um, yeah got certified in both studies and am now a coach. You said you were working on your own healing. Um, yes. If it's not too personal, what? How did that look like? Like, did you went to therapy? Um, um, you said you you booked a, a workshop. Like, was there still like so much unresolved stuff from the from the childhood that you that you felt like you have to heal from that first in order to help other people? For sure. If you want to become a coach, you need to heal your own shit, basically. And yes, I mean, I knew the way that I was living didn't get me the results that I wanted. And that's, I think, something that we all need to, to realize, you know, everything that you've done until up until now just brought you this far, but it won't get you to where you actually want to go because of the paradigms, because of the limiting beliefs, because of all the traumas that you have been put through as a, as a young child, but also in your youth. So I knew there was a lot of unresolved trauma on top of, I mean, I went to therapy, but back then was because my boyfriend committed suicide. And even though so many years passed by, 18 years, almost 17 years, almost, I still knew that it was still inside of me, that it still kept me from certain things, but also the way I've been brought up, the way I saw myself and what I thought was possible for me to achieve as an Assyrian woman. So I booked a coaching, which was online with a really huge workbook and, you know, having everyday sessions and really working on the way I've brought up, but also the way I see life, the way um, how my relationship are, how is my relationship to my partner, to my children, to my parents, to my friends? How do I see money? Money mindset was such a big thing. Self-love, how do I see myself, my self-worth? So it was really hard because a lot of things came to the surface that you just kept under so while doing, you know, these these coachings and the children's coach um, study was really every two weeks going to school. So it was a, a class settings where we worked on our uh, inner child. So they were really heavy sessions, a lot of tears, a lot of traumas came up, which we resolved. So I knew that I have to go through my own traumas and my own healing before I'm even able to help others so yeah that was basically what what happened while studying and you know um learning the profession of becoming a coach as well as healing my my own my own self yeah so now that you became a coach what exactly is your work about because somebody asked me what is the difference between a therapist and a coach yes well the the, the the difference is basically, um, I mean, a therapist is allowed to work on things which I'm as a coach are not able to. So basically, I can work with you when you struggle with certain things, when you have traumatized, when you have, um, you know, certain paradigms. I am able to help you until a certain point. But when it's really going into um, a stage where psychotherapy is needed, then this is basically the threshold for me to say, okay, you know what, this is really something I'm not able to help you with because um, I didn't study for that. Um, 
and I'm not certified also as well to, to work on that. So I would say that a coach does cover a lot of um, trauma healing, body work, alignment work, um, you know, inner healing. But when it really comes down to psychotherapy or really um, issues also with, you know, mental health, the, the stronger form, then this is something a coach is not able to do. Then it's also our duty as a coach, because you're also um, doing an oath that you really need to, um, you know, tell that person then to see a professional. That doesn't mean that a coach isn't professional, but because the, the job title coach is not a um, secured title, basically. So everyone um, can call himself a coach makes it a bit difficult but you know a good coach knows where his boundaries are and then you know gives the proper um help to someone else who's more in a in a deeper mental uh, mental health state also the difference is that when you work with a psych or with a therapist excuse me um, at least for for Europe, that's the way. I'm not sure how it works in in you know in the US or in other countries. Um, it's also with your insurance, with your health insurance. It's covered by your health insurance, but working with a coach is not. So working with a coach is really something that you pay out of your own pocket. And um, so you do um, hire a coach to to help you. Um, so yeah, these I would say are the two major things and I think also there is a lot of need for help for healing um, at the moment and getting a spot at a psychologist in Europe again takes a lot of time I know people who want to see a professional but it takes up to six months or even a year to get a spot because this sector is just so um, overwhelmed with you know all the the all the people that need that healing. So the first step is for people also then to see a coach to help you immediately. And then if there is still unresolved traumas, unresolved issues, you know, you can still approach that step to um, to seeing a, a, a therapist, I would say. So these would be the three different um, things. And I know for a lot of people, it's easier to approach a coach than uh, a therapist or a psychologist because of that, you know, shame and um, not being so common in the community. Because I do see that a lot, that there's still this negativity around or shame around, you know, um, looking for help and realizing that you have a problem. Um, yet it is a sign of strength realizing that there are certain things you cannot work out on your own and getting the help you need to go where you want so yeah what what stood out to me in your job description on your website <laughs> was uh intercultural coach yes and mm -hmm. i mean i know what intercultural means because i struggled with that too when i was searching for a therapist and mm -hmm. Um, because I'm from that culture and, and you have like, for example, a German therapist, you have a gap, like mm -hmm. there is some certain things that 
they just don't understand and you have to like invest more time into like uh, explaining mm -hmm. it. For example, my, my therapist always says, Jesse, why do you say we? Mm. You always say, we need to, we need to mm. do this, we need to do that. Who is we? I'm like, yeah, my people, bro. <laughs> <laughs> my, my community, you know, <laughs> my <Yeah>. ancestors. <laughs> so <laughs> you have this specialization. Please explain to me, why did you decide to have that? And what made that, um, what does that mean to you? Yeah, well, for me, because of that same reason, all the the therapists or, you know, coaches that I had were um, Germans, Dutch, Americans who didn't know or who don't know what it means to be a Syrian. I mean, being a foreigner is anyway already something different, but being a Syrian and, you know, not having a country, that's, of course, something even more special. So no one really could could understand what I was going through, what I was struggling with. You know, a lot of therapists just told me, yeah, well, then just don't do these kind of things. And I was like, yeah, but it's not as black as white. So for me, it was really difficult to go through my own healing, but still have that part of, okay, but they don't really know what it means to be a Syrian or, you know, being raised by Middle Eastern parents. So in the beginning, I was just a woman's coach. I did coach basically um, the women who want, wanted more out of life, but I realized my satisfaction wasn't in that group. And um, I remember that my coach back then was telling me, you need to focus on, you know, your your people. And I was like, yeah, well, I don't really know. And I'm not sure whether this is something they're waiting for. So I was somehow convincing myself this isn't needed or you know who would do a coaching with me etc which was my own limiting belief but I realized that this wasn't why I was here and I um, took a social media break last year in December just you know throughout the holidays social media break and I did spend a lot of time um, with myself a lot of meditating a lot of journaling and just really asking that question like what is my path? Why am I here? I knew I was on the right path, but it just didn't felt like, okay, this is it. This is my mission. I know what, what's expected of me. This is why I'm here. And in that two weeks and having a really special, they call it Akashic reading, helped me to realize what was there all the time, but I just didn't see it that This is what my people need. And I realized that the struggles that I had through my own healing by not being understood by all these therapists or coaches, the struggle that I had turned suddenly into my superpower. And I realized, okay, if I'm the one struggling, there must be many, many, many more women who go through the same struggles that I have. And that's when I decided to you know, say, okay, I'm going to be the first basically intercultural coach in the Assyrian community to offer that kind of help. And this is what I'm good at because there is no better teacher than one of your own. 
I know how you feel, Jesse. I know how you think. I know the way you have been raised. I know the similarities. I know the challenges. So I realized that I'm the best person to help these women because I have been through that and that I have the tools to help them to get where they want to go. And that's really when I decided this is the the group I want to work with, the niche. And that's when I realized this is it and when everything basically fall, fell into places. And um, I know this is my mission. I know that everything I've been through, and I know that sounds really cheesy, but um, what I've went through with um, my boyfriend who committed suicide, all the drama with, with my parents moving out of the house as an unwed woman um, 12 years ago, that everything that I went through, which was really hardship, prepared me for the work that I'm doing right now. Do you have a Syrian clients? I do. <laughs> and what are the common struggles and needs that they're like communicating with you? I think the common struggle is really finding your own way in who you want to be, juggling the expectations of family, culture, community, and your own dreams and wishes. There is also shame in wanting more out of life and not, you know, continuing maybe the hardship that our parents went through. Um, there's also a lot of um, low self-esteem, low self-worth, because a lot of us didn't really learn that, how to really stand up for ourselves but also a lot of traumas, which of course also has been passed down from our ancestors. So it's really also about ancestral healing, uh, lots of mental health, anxiety. Um, so there are really different things, but at the end it all comes down to whether we give ourselves the permission to go for that life that we desire so much. And that of course is connected to everything, the way you have been raised, um, ancestral healing, the way you see yourself, self-worth, self-love. Um, and of course, um, a subject that no one really talks about is of course, um, sexuality. I mean, we've been raised, um, and I think in Europe, it's a bit more strict, I would assume, you know, to, um, to really save yourself until you get married. But I mean, sexuality is so much more than just um, being sexual active. It's claiming also your sensuality, but also realizing what your body is like, what you have. And I mean, we as a woman, we bring life to the world. We have a portal between our legs. And it's also that body loving because a lot of us and that's something that I struggled with a lot was really accepting my body for who it is and seeing it more than just a tool which carries me through life and that is of course also part of healing that you know um, loving your body and loving yourself and yeah of course this this whole sexuality part part is also a struggle in our community um which I really think need to shift because right now 
it's seen like a woman who is sexually active is you know just called bad names but when we really think about sexuality is it's the most spiritual thing that you have and that you can do and being sexual active is more than just you know having sex with someone it's really becoming one with with a soul but also recognizing who you are as a soul being and yeah i think it's i think the time is a bit short to really go into that part but yeah it is also a big part that we don't talk about i mean i know that um for women there is um also this um wish for women who are not married or who don't have a partner who would like to become a mother and who consider you know to um but going to a sperm bank that's what i wanted to say and still being able to raise a child which is of course the biggest taboo ever i mean in our culture the constellation as you get married you make children and that's it but a single woman is not allowed or you know it's just the biggest shameful thing to do to say well regardless whether i have a partner or not i still want to become a mother so these are also topics um that i occasionally um yeah get from women who really struggle and want that but don't pursue that wish because of the family the community and these kind of things so yeah these are also two um subjects which we talk about a lot yeah can you walk me through what you're doing with these women like to understand a little bit how, uh, like are they sitting in a room and you're talking to them well if it's of course very individual to the person what is it that you want and i mean the first session is always about um first we get on a quick call to see whether we are a match when we're a match then we continue in approximately 10 sessions which is really my longest but also really in-depth going coaching. The first session is always, okay, where do you stand right now? What are your struggles? And then we go through, okay, where do you want to go? Um, what is is it that you desire? We, we make a plan on how to get there. And then it's really the in-depth. We start with a family constellation because everything that you're struggling right now, what's keeping you from doing, you know, getting that job, quitting that job, um, traveling the world whatever it is that you want and not doing right now is something that happened when you were as a child either you know you were actively in a situation where you picked up certain things or you were a witness so we start with the family constellation so okay what is the dynamic in your family um we talk about um your body so it's also body work we do ancestral healing the sessions are all online um, I always recommend to do that either in, in your bed or, you know, just make yourself comfortable because it's something um, you open up yourself and I want you to feel safe. And that's for me when you're in your either in your living room when you are on your own or in your own uh, sleeping room, you know, just really um, being with your own thought and um, just making it really comfortable for you to to sit there and, and talk about and then there are, of course, different stages um, where we talk about, you know, like um, CEO of your life. What, what do you want your life to look like? When you look back, we do write letters to our future self, but also to our past self. We do inner child healing. So basically really going through certain areas, depending on, of course, where your struggle is and um, stuff like that. So that's basically um, how a session um, looks like. 
or the, the sessions and then um, yeah approximately 10 sessions is the the coaching that I do because um, that's really a deep uh, deep coaching where we go into into depth and in, in, in the traumas and the paradigms and um, yeah where, where ancestral healing is also a part meditation is also a big part as um, of that as well um, breath breath uh, breath work um, so yeah, does that answer your question? Do you offer that online or do you also visit people? Um, at this moment, all my clients are not located in the Netherlands, which means I do it online. But when there are clients here um, in the neighborhood or even in Rotterdam self, then either I invite them to my house or um, I do get an office where I can do certain sessions. But for now, everything is is online where, you know, there's no travel needed, etc., etc. Um, for the ones located in the, in, in the neighborhood in Rotterdam, I leave it up to them whether they want to do it um, face to face or online which of course gives also a lot of flexibility obviously because there's no travel involved um and you're in your safe harbor uh, safe harbor which a lot of clients of mine really appreciate to be in their own home when going through you know all that um coaching and because a lot of um a lot is happening in, in a coaching session itself but also afterwards because things will be set in in motion and um so yeah that's what most of them actually prefer to really be in their own environment where they feel safe. Beautiful. I want to touch on one thing that you said, the, the ancestral trauma, which yeah. question is the same as generational trauma, correct? Kind yes. Of. Okay. Yeah. So I'm always wondering what needs to happen to have a new generation of, you know, a Syrian woman and men that is less struggling with that, like less struggling with generational trauma and the pressure of the society without losing ties to their identity. There are days where, for example, I wake up and say, oh, damn, I just want to wake up one day and not be a Syrian, not to have mm. all that baggage on my shoulders and the responsibilities mm -hmm. um and there are other people like you know that are not inside of my culture that always say well it's it's not a burden that you had to take or nobody forced you to do it but like it's not that easy and of course i don't want my children to go through the same things like i don't want this thing to repeat itself yeah so what do you think? How, how can we break the circle, but not lose all the other stuff, you know, the good stuff? Um, I think the, the easiest answer is everyone needs a healing. Exclamation mark. <laughs> okay. Because, <laughs> and I will say why, we all have been traumatized, no matter what we think, but subconsciously a lot is going on that many of us maybe don't realize at the moment because we have been programmed to be how we are that we don't even notice that because we just function at as you know on autopilot ancestral healing means everything that happened seven generations ago 
is still in your body because our cells save emotions. So everything that our ancestors have been through has been the emotion that that trauma caused has been saved in our body, which then has been giving from mother to mother to mother, same as for the father, obviously, has been passed down until to you. And there are a lot of clients of mine who say they are struggling with certain things that they cannot explain where it's coming from. And very often that's something that you've inherited because of, you know, certain trauma your ancestors went through. And what I also tell my clients all the time is, you know, when you choose yourself, when you choose your inner healing, it doesn't mean you forget who you are. It doesn't mean you're less Assyrian or not. But when you choose yourself, you make sure that you heal yourself, but you also heal your ancestors because they went through hardship. They went through so much and you're here now to change it. But as you also said, more important is also that you break the cycle and also create a new path for the, for the generation to come. Because what we've been through is something that you don't want to pass down to your children. And you can only do that when you realize that I need to work on myself. I need to heal what's keeping me from. And every one of us has a different, um, you know, imagination about how his life is look like, wants to look like, um, his, his dreams and wishes. But you can only achieve that when you heal yourself from everything that has been passed down to you, which is not yours. What your friends also told you, a lot of the things that you're struggling with right now are not your reality. And if you think what I'm talking about, I'm going to explain it to you. You come to the world as a baby. You know, you're just being born. You're this perfect, amazing, beautiful baby. And then you enter this world. You notice your family, your parents. And at a certain point, when you get a little bit older, you notice these are the things I'm allowed to do. These are the things I'm not allowed to do. And everything is in life is repetition. When you tell a child 20 times to not touch that table, he will touch it or she. But then it knows, okay, it's danger. I'm not going to do it. It's the repetition. If you tell a baby that something that you have in your hand, let's see, it's a vase. The vase is green. But if you tell the baby this vase is blue, that infant is going to take that as its truth. So because he has learned this, he has seen this, this creates his reality, which means the reality, your reality, all the norms and the thing that you believe are, 90% the belief of others, the belief of your mother, of your father, of your grandparents when you grew up with your grandparents, so basically the community. And nothing is really yours because you have adapted to the environment that you're in. You have adapted to the beliefs that you got. 
And that's why we struggle so much because every one of us knows there are certain things that you don't do as an Assyrian. And I'm just going to take plain and simple. You're not married outside of your um, ethnicity or, um, you know, being an Assyrian. This is something we all grow up with. And a lot of us don't do that. And I know women who let their love that they fell in love with, which was not an Assyrian man, let go because of that belief that they had to marry an Assyrian man in order to make their parents happy. So everything which you think right now is a reality that has been put upon you and which is not necessarily really your reality. And that's why I say we need to we need to work on ourselves to let that part go of what we thought is our reality and really create our own. And yes, most probably you will find out that the things that you have been told are not necessarily your truth or you have a different f- uh, view on points on certain things. And most probably you might be hurting your parents because you change maybe the way you live, uh, maybe the the way you see the world, the way you um, behave or, you know, or religion, or I don't know what, there's so much more to discover, but then you are able to find the true you when you are the one who can decide what you want to believe in and what kind of life you want to create. That's what I see. And I mean, I, knew I'm going to break that cycle because for my children, because I don't want them to have that same struggle. But I could only do that when I started with myself. Does that make sense? It does make sense. While you were talking, I was trying to figure out a situation where mm-hmm. you can apply this. Um I, I, I want to make one example, and I don't know if it's suitable, but I, it just came into my mind, okay? Yeah, tell me. Seifo, the mm-hmm. genocide of 1915. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the common Assyrian grows up like this, that your parents or your community or your cultural club, whatever, they tell you, you have to honor your ancestors. You know, they they died because of this and Mm. because of that. And you were not alive if this person did not survive, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. It's always very present while you're Mm -hmm. growing up. And Mm -hmm. um, you feel like you have to go to protest. You have to, you know, fight for injustices. And it's just never, never letting go. And obviously because the world will never really grant us the justice. That's just how the world is, I guess. Mm. So I had a conversation with somebody that said, I forgave them and I'm letting this part go. Like, I'm not interested into it anymore. I'm letting this go. I cannot change what happened. And um, I don't want to constantly go back to this Mm. part of history, Mm. which is feels odd to me because I'm like, well, then, you know, they died for nothing. And, you know, how can you be so ungrateful? And how can you let this go? But like by letting go, mm-hmm. you're giving yourself more freedom, right? You're, you're, yes, I would say it's healing. <laughs> Sometimes healing feels a little bit like 
being a traitor, but yeah, I, I don't know how to describe it. Maybe you okay, understood my, what I'm Yes, I do. And my question would be immediately, what makes you think that's odd that this person wants to let go of it? And who told you you're going to be a traitor? That's, again, something that you've been indoctrinated. Someone told you if you're not going to a protest, if you're not keep constantly talking about Saifo, what has been um, done to us, then you're a traitor. But why? Why is that? That's something that a person thinks that he's a traitor. But like that friend of yours, I would say the same thing. Your ancestor, ancestors died. It's really cruel what happened to us. I think no one in this world can deny it. And yet, you are here. You made it here. Your ancestors died but you're part of this and you can change the course of it if you want. You don't need to suffer in order to keep, you know, the Assyrians alive or make sure that, you know, um, this will not be repeated. But I think if this is something that you want to do, you can do it, but from a place of healing. Because indeed, it happened 100 years ago. It's something that you cannot change. But we can make sure when we heal ourselves that we move forward in healing and with love. And I know a lot of people will think I'm crazy for saying this, but love is the answer. You cannot move forward when you're having a grudge against someone. Forgiveness doesn't mean you forgave the person for what he or she did to you. Forgiveness means you are letting go so it won't stay apart in your system it's that poison you're ready to let go for your own healing for your own best will and that's i think something we need to learn um and i mean as i said before i grew up in a really strict assyrian household saifu was all that's been talked about it's such a bad thing but because i'm not going to any protest just as an example it doesn't mean i don't care for my people or I don't care for what happened. I just know that by feeling a grudge and feeling hurt, there is no benefit. We can be a force when we let that part of our history be what it is, but move forward with love and as a united nation rather than one that is so, so deeply hurt and again, we are hurt because of what happened to us, the pain that they have caused us. And yet I believe that our generation is stronger when we go into that healing and unite and make this a, a cause. And that's what I said also um, two days ago in my stories. You know, when we go into healing, we can claim back what is ours. And that's, that, that's really what I truly believe. So would you say we need to find a different way of honoring our past and our ancestors than compared to our parents and grandparents? Yes, because we have the chance. Yes, we were born in the diaspora, so we kind of lost touch to, you know, our motherland. That's true. 
But on the other hand, it's also a blessing because here we have the resources. We can do it differently. Our ancestors didn't have the chance to think about personal development, healing, or you know, um, achieving the life that you dream of. No, they had to play a role in that um, big community and that was it. But you don't have to, you are free, you can choose. This will not stop with you, Jesse, and not with me if we're not going to change something, because this is something that we're going to pass down. And everyone who's listening, who has children, I'm sure you realize that the way that you've been brought and brought up and certain things that you didn't like, what your parents did to you is not something that you want to pass down to your own children. So it has to stop with us. And only when we can let it go in love, let it go in love, honor it for what it is, we can make a bigger change. Well, that was deep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that was very, um, that was a good conversation. I want to touch on one more topic, then I'm going to let you go. We talked a lot about improvement, mm -hmm. healing, etc. So yeah. I read a little bit about this self-help trap and what it is about. It says, you know, the idea of improving yourself, you know, became really commercialized. Mm -hmm. And this idea of I need to be fixed it's manifesting itself um very deep you know and especially like during the pandemic i feel like yeah like how can i be productive how can i do this shit i didn't do the yoga 10 minutes and i didn't mm. do this da, da, da. do you see a danger in that and where should people draw the line between i'm healing mm -hmm. and then like I'm getting too much into the self-help and trying to optimize myself so much that I'm forgetting what this is really about. Yeah, I think you, yes, it has been really um, being commercialized, this I need to fix myself. First of all, I want to say there's nothing wrong with you because you're still this perfect human being as you came to that world, you know, when you were born. A part of God is in us. We're part of this universe. We're part of God because that's why we that perfect person. We just have been taught to think differently about ourselves. And what I said before, that created your truth, which is not necessarily yours because you still can choose to believe in different things. Like most of us, you have to work really, really, really hard to, um, you know, to be successful. That's also just a limiting belief. And I think to realize that you are already perfect, but you want to let go of what is keeping you to become that best version of you. And that might be just, you know, feeling free from all that expectation or achieving that certain goal that you have. Um, But it's also enjoying the process because it's um, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And you cannot be fixed because you're not broken. You just, I take it as an onion, you know, you're like an onion. And with healing yourself, you're, you know, removing every layer that is keeping you 
from being really who you are because we don't show ourselves for certain reasons we can't be ourselves because of all the things that we believe and all the things that we have been taught and i really see it as an onion every layer that you just you know remove you're gonna come to your source and be really who you want to be and feeling this love and this light inside of you um so i would say there is nothing wrong with you you're not broken to be fixed you just decide to create a life how you want it and still be who you are, but with your own, you know, rules and with your own wishes and your own desires without someone telling you how you have to be. That's how I see healing and, you know, meditation and yoga and breath work are just tools um, they don't work for everyone, but these are things who have been around for many of thousands of years and they help you to center yourself. So healing is really about centering yourself, looking in the inside. Okay, who am I really? Um, and I think that's what healing is about and not necessarily about the feeling I need to become a better person. Yes, we do talk about the best version of yourself, but that is basically the purest version of you. So who were you when you were born as a child? Because if I look at my children, they're three and six, they think the world is full of chances. Um, they don't think, oh yeah, I cannot become, you know, the my, my oldest son wants to be the director of the zoo here in Rotterdam. You know, he thinks that's just possible. A grown-up person would think, yeah, well, that's really not possible. How can I do it? Um, my son just told me he wants to buy a Ferrari when he's big. You know, so they are so, they see the world in a totally different view. For them, everything is possible and everything can be achieved. And they're still so, there's this easiness about life. And they don't get why we grown-ups are so complicated because basically it's not we just have been told that life has to be difficult life has to be a struggle and healing for me also meant less doing and more being being out in nature being with you meditating you know i'm listening to your breath and just really connecting to yourself because i really was disconnected from my from my body and i mean like i said i saw it just as a engine machine that kept me alive that brought me you know and um, going back and forth and giving birth to to amazing children but that's all i saw it but now i know that it my body is so much more than just the body and when you're really in alignment with your soul and in your heart and in your brain, then this is when you really become the purest self. And I just remember listening to a podcast where someone said, now how we people function is, you know, we let our brain lead us. We completely ignore our heart, but we do realize the feeling. But when you were in your mother's womb, the first thing that was ever there was this intuition was your heart so basically your heart is the first thing that's there ever your heart has a desire which creates that feeling of you know being loved and um this tingling that you want to achieve what it is you want to achieve and then your brain has been developed but for some reason you know 
coming to this world, being a child, going to school, uh, going to work, study, you know what? We learn to listen to our head instead of our our heart, which was there in the first place and which knows you best. So healing means for me listening to your heart and doing what's what's in the best um, interest for you. Babylonia, at the end of every interview, we usually ask the guest if there's anything that you want to say to our Assyrian listeners around the world, what would that be? That's a really good one. And I think what just comes up is you're the best investment in this world. And deciding to heal will take you to places that you didn't even know exist before because you will see so much beauty in life and so much beauty in yourself and you know when you heal you give others the permission to heal as well and in a society right now where healing is something we don't do we just you know are so busy with life and so stuck in our own routines that we really forget um, why we're here. You're here to make an impact. You're here to shape the world with your love and with your light. And I just wish for you that you find the courage to, you know, get someone to help you work on yourself, to keep shedding that onion, to, to become this amazing person because, you know, we have so much to give, especially as, as an Assyrian nation, there is so much for us to, to still do. And I, I really believe you can only do that when, when you're ready to, to let go of what's holding you back. And yeah, like I said, you're here to, to make an impact. You have a, you have a reason why you're here. So, so make it count and ask yourself if I'm 80 years old, I'm sitting in a movie theater with my family and friends and, you know, they made a film about my life. What do you want your, your grandchildren to see? Do you want them to see someone who just stuck up to the rules and just did what was expected of them and, you know, let's a life that was based on fear or do you want your grandchildren to tell you you know what grandma granddad what an amazing movie you let you let a life so full of love and um you know did really an impact on this on this world so that was always the question that i keep asking myself what is it that i want to be remembered for when when i'm not around anymore and you're just such a special person you're unique there is no one like you and i really hope that you find the courage to to reveal that uniqueness that you that you carry in yourself yeah i think that's it <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed episode 177 with Babylonia. In order to keep our Assyrian podcast community growing, please consider sharing this episode out to three people in your life. Thanks again and see you next week.